Welcome to Conversations with Karalia, where we take a nuanced deep dive into all things related to spirituality, sexuality, power, and awakening. My name is Karalia, and I'm your host for this journey. I invite you to relax back, open up, and get curious. And don't forget to subscribe, like, and share the love. Are you ready to realize the self, to resolve your shit, to rejoice in daily life? Join Karalia's community via her online platform, The Toolbox. Get ready for a paradigm shift in how you experience yourself and your reality. The Toolbox, where you'll find everything you need for the spiritual path, view teachings, practices, community, and a teacher who cares. Find the toolbox at toolbox.karalia.com. T-O-O-L-B-O-X dot K-A-R-A-L-E-A-H dot com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I feel a bit cheeky coming on these. Um, so welcome to the next conversation with Karalia. Today I am interviewing David Wagner or Hashada as he is known. He is a traditionally trained tantric teacher who I was first introduced to via Christopher Wallace's tantric group, Tantra Yoga, uh, Tantric Yoga Now on Facebook. And since then I ended up signing up with Hashada and I'm now doing some mentoring teacher-student work with him, which has been incredibly beneficial and supportive and amazing for my own journey. And I just realized like how much wisdom Hashada has to share on, he's at, he's at this interesting sort of intersection, like he lives in Southern California, he's an artist, he's a householder, you know, he's got two children, um, basically living that modern spiritual practitioner householder life. And he's also spent decades doing serious practice and study within the tantric lineages. So he's kind of at this, this confluence or can speak to what it's like to be an ordinary householder practitioner, you know, in the Western world, but also has insight into the traditional practices, et cetera. So I asked him, of course, to do a conversation with Karalia where we can dive into all the things. And I'm sure that you'll absolutely enjoy this interview. So stick around, make sure you stay right to the end because of course I come on at the end and do a little bit of wrap up and reflection on what happened with the conversation. Uh, so settle in, settle in and enjoy the ride. All righty. So welcome Hashira. Did I get it right this time? Hashira. I mean, I've been working with you for five months. Do you think I could pronounce your name? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you probably never call me by my name. Yeah, Harshida is, Harshida is how it is. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to Conversations with Karalia. Thank you. I'm so happy um, to be here. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk as well. And I'm aware that, you know, my audience is likely not heard of you, don't know who you are. So I thought I'd start with a little background in terms of, I mean, you're living in California mm. now. You're a father of two, you're an artist as well as a teacher. How and when did you get onto the spiritual path? Like, what what drew you on? Mm, long time ago. Mm. Um, so I started 
really on the spiritual path when I was a teenager. I was living in the middle of the U.S. in what we call the Midwest, and um, I got sober. I, you know, grew up in a sort of addict, alcoholic home, and I myself was kind of a wild, juvenile, delinquent sort of a kid, and was just into partying and you know playing in bands and um, that sort of thing, and. I mean, the it's a very long story, but the short version is uh, I got sober and went to 12-step program. And this is in the 80s, you know, mm. in, the middle of, in the middle of Illinois. And it just so happened that there was this really, really great spirituality taught in those 12-step meetings that I went to in those days. So that was the very beginning introduction. But it wasn't so long after that, that I was introduced to Ram Dass's book, Be Here Now. Mm. And, and then very soon after that, my mother died of cancer. And in a way that I really bared witness to, mm. and um, bore witness to. And all of that was kind of the beginning for me mm. um, at a relatively young age. And then a little bit later when I was in college, just a, a few years later, then I met the guru that I took initiation from and, and did my kind of formal training. Mm -hmm. And who, who was that guru? So she was Guru Mai Chidvalasananda. She was the, mm. the spiritual head of the Siddha Yoga lineage from the lineage of Baba Muktananda and mm -hmm. Bhagwan Nityananda. So that mm. lineage was that I, where I did my initial training for many, many mm -hmm. years. So did you actually go and live in her ashram? I did. Uh, I was a, a student and uh, really disciple for a few years in Chicago first. Mm -hmm. And then I went onto her staff, which meant you lived at whatever ashram you were kind of assigned so for about 10 years i was in full-time service uh, with mm. her inclu including three years when i lived in new zealand uh -huh. interestingly yeah in, in auckland in auckland and in those days i would mostly go and serve in the ashrams that we had in australia mm -hmm. okay so 10 years of serving in the ashram so when you're in new zealand was there an ashram here no. or Right. There was there was a meditation center there, but you know I was part of sort of a global staff. Uh -huh. So you were sent to New Zealand because of being part of this ashram, this this particular lineage. No, you chose. No, no. My my wife at the time was from New Zealand, and uh, that was just made sense for me to to relocate to New Zealand yeah. for those years. Uh huh. So spending 10 years like on staff and ashrams etc i'm guessing this would have been the 90s was that somewhat unusual in your social circle or were other people that you yeah. knew well do yeah what was that like like you must have had a pretty strong pull to do this thing that i imagine then was quite outside the mainstream yeah i mean i think that i've always had this tendency as a seeker and now really as a teacher to really gravitate towards the hardcore mm -hmm. and um that was the 
most hardcore thing that was available to me at the time. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't any, there wasn't any thought about like social concerns or anything like that. I just knew almost as soon as I took Guru Mai on as my guru, that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I really wanted to be a monk actually, if, if she would have given me a chance to take, uh, the vows of monkhood, I would have done that back in those days for sure. So what was it like then being in the ashram and having a guru? Like, do you fully surrender or free will as such? Like what was that, <laughs> right? Because people have all these ideas about what it means or doesn't mean. What was it actually like in the in the day-to-day? Yeah. Well, our ashram and the way that Gurmai was was very um, worldly in a certain, in a comparative way, you know, like we didn't wear robes or, you know, in fact, we, we kind of dressed up, you know, if you came onto one of the ashram campuses, you'd feel like you were at like a, I don't know, like a tech company or something. Um, (laughs) I would wear shirts with collars and like dress pants and always had a haircut and, you know, always was, was well-groomed, especially because uh, my service that I offered was almost always somehow related to teaching Mm -hmm. and was somewhat public. So especially as someone who was doing public service, um, you know, uh, it was very, a very professional which I really appreciate so much mm-hmm. and my so some of my bosses some of my supervisors were monks and monastic people uh, but you know there's a lot of a lot of work being done you know a lot of service because you'd have your main job whatever that was and for me at first I was teaching hatha yoga like physical yoga and then I was brought into another area where I was just teaching Dharma for high school and college students, teenagers mm-hmm. and college students was kind of my, my thing. I was only 25, 26 when I first moved there. So I, I myself was still very young. Um, but, you know, lots of meetings and creating curriculum and designing courses and, um, and then mm. all of the practice, you know, you'd get up early in the morning to practice and there's recitations to do and meditation to do. And uh, it was all very optional in those ashrams. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so you could I, skip class, you didn't have to get up early and do the practice or? No, no. It, the thing that you had to do was whatever your job was. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> and then all the other things were were optional. and. I, I was surprised by that. You know, I thought mm. that, you know, when I went to the ashram, it was something that I had longed for and something that I really had aspired to for many years. And, you know, when I first started doing this work in, in that path, I was an art student. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was just, you know, dating a lot and I smoked cigarettes in those days and um, ate meat and everything. And then I thought to live in the ashram, I needed to be celibate and vegetarian and super disciplined and really like for all intents and purposes, a monk. 
Mm-hmm. And so I started living that way to some extent in Chicago beforehand and really like, you know, stopped smoking and stopped eating meat and became very disciplined and um, was even celibate for some time before I moved to the ashram. And then moved to the ashram and found out I was one of the only, especially one of the only younger people uh, mm-hmm. that was leading that lifestyle. It, it was mm. um, it was kind of shocking. And also, I think because it was, nothing was forced as far as doing practices. Um, I, I mean, I had a lot of arrogance in those days too, but I just felt like people were very lazy. Like the other people in the ashram, you know, I had a very like superior attitude about myself and uh, about my level of hardcore. And Uh um, I didn't see that reflected so much. (laughs) So then when you're there and you're doing practices, how much interaction are you having with Guru Mai? Like, and how much is she kind of guiding your path? What was that process like? Well, you know, it's that particular, that particular scene you know, it's a big scene. It's a mm. worldwide sangha. And um, Guru Mai, as a teacher, is pretty removed in a certain way. You have a lot more of interaction with other senior teachers, like senior monks and other senior teachers. She would come and give talks and uh, lead programs. And the idea was that everything that we were doing was curated under her supervision as the mm-hmm. guru um, and her authority and her doing that on b- behalf of her guru before her. Mm-hmm. Um, many people on that path did not have and don't have a whole lot of interaction with her. I was very fortunate just because of the, the sevas that I had Um I had quite a bit of interaction with her. So I did get a lot of personal guidance from her compared to, to other people. Mm. So then you obviously ended up leaving the ashram at some point. What precipitated that decision? Well, you know, this is, you know, like 10 years down the road. And Mm. at that point um, I had, I had lived out of the ashram, as I said, in New Zealand for some time. And then for the last three years, I had uh, an apartment in New York City, and I also had quarters in the ashram in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. A- and I was doing global kind of things, too. Um, and just gradually, I started seeing that there was more opportunity for me to serve outside of that context than inside the context. Mm-hmm. And service was such an important aspect of of my path that uh, that was that was really the thing. One of my senior teachers and mentors was uh, Sally Kempton, mm-hmm. who in those days was Swami Durgananda. She was mm-hmm. one of the monks that uh, was really a mentor to me, and you know, a, a friend, and just you know, a, a beautiful kind of senior senior sadhaka. Um, they guided me a lot. And around that time is when she also left the organization and published her book and started teaching on her own and writing for Yoga Journal and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it was kind of in that same in that same moment and in, in that same movement. Mm. 
Okay. So in terms, because on your website, it talks about how you're, you know, classically trained in the wisdom traditions, et cetera. So that's what you're talking about. So when you were there at the ashram, were you being like trained as a teacher per se? Were there teacher trainings or was it a different kind <laughs> of, yeah, it was a different kind of path. You know, I'll tell you a secret. I've never taken a teacher training. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so how did... Don't, don't, I won't don't tell anyone. Tell, I'm don't not tell the anyone. Yoga, don't tell the yoga alliance. <laughs> um, no, I, I was very, very fortunate in that uh, I did all of my training as an apprentice, really. You know, yeah. like going right back to when I was a Hatha yoga teacher in Chicago. Uh, it, that was before there was such a thing as teacher trainings, to, mm. first of all. Um, but, you know, my, my teacher who's an Iyengar teacher, Gabriel Halpern, just took me on as an apprentice and I apprenticed under him to learn how to teach asana. And when I came to the ashram, it was similar. Um, Mm. I just had the opportunity to um, work directly under senior teachers Mm -hmm. and, you know, take Guru Mai's teachings and the teachings from the different scriptures and traditions and um, was just given a lot of rope and a, a lot of free space to learn how to teach by mm. trial and error. I, I just taught so much. I, early on, the, that first year that I moved to the ashram, Gurmai sent me to India, actually, to teach, of mm-hmm. all things. <laughs> it's kind of mm. crazy when I think about it now. <laughs> you know, being like a 26-year-old white American <laughs> kid, you know, teaching Dharma in India. Um, with another 26-year-old who was an Indian. But, um, you know, we were on the road, you know, teaching almost every day Mm -hmm. uh, for that whole, you know, period of about six months or so. And I just got a ton of practice and a ton of direct um, supervision and feedback and, and, uh, guidance, you know, just mm-hmm. from all of my senior teachers and, and some directly from her as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So was this the same ashram that Christopher Wallace was in, Upper State, New York? With Guru yeah. So did your yeah. paths cross? Definitely. <laughs> he, so Harish, that's his, that's his ashram yeah. name. Um, Harish was friends with my roommate, Shashi Deva. Um, and they were into playing Dungeons and Dragons. And so he would come over to our room and play Dungeons and Dragons with yeah. uh, Shashi Deva. So uh, I, I didn't know him that well, but yeah. um, he, he was in a technical department. He was in the, the kind of sound department. He was a sound mm-hmm. engineer in those days. And um, at one point I had the Seva of, say when I say Seva, that means like, my job in the ashram it's like it means service but we you know we use it like a noun like that and um so i had the seva of this is gonna sound silly but this is like this is like one of the best things that i've ever done in my whole life Uh in a weird way so the guru when she would come to programs oftentimes they were big big programs with like hundreds or even thousands of people and her chair was kind of up on like a little platform and she would be leading a chant or giving a talk or something like that. And um, 
she was she was very elegant and had a great very tantric in a certain way uh and she had a, a real sense of like um beauty and and like everything looked really good and really clean and really like beautifully uh arranged and decorated and orchestrated so her microphone it was like this it was actually an opera microphone and it was a little tiny microphone only about this big and it was on this long 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 thin stem mm-hmm. and so the microphone stand would be on the ground like to the side and um it was where it was it really wasn't easy for her to take it and position it so there was a seva where groom i would come to the come to the hall you know, everyone would be seated and then she would come in and she'd take her seat. And then when she was ready to speak, she would kind of give a signal and then someone would come and place her microphone and it would have to be just right. And um, she was kind of particular about like who did things directly with her like that. And for some reason, I got that gig. I didn't have anything to do with sound or anything like that, but I had other savas that were kind of around her. So um, I wasn't the main guy who did that, but I, I got to do it quite a bit. And it was this, it was this really cool privilege because um, you get to go up like right by her, right by her seat. And oftentimes the seating would start a ways back from her seat. You know, just for like the sake of like people being able to see her and, you know, just in the big in the big halls and you'd be able to you'd just sit there and she would come and oftentimes it'd be a long time before she would actually give the signal. And then sometimes the signal would be very, very subtle. <laughs> and so you just have to you would she didn't like people to stare at her or uh be overly outwardly devotional she didn't she didn't like that she kind of discouraged that especially for those of us who were on staff but this is like one saver where you had full permission to just stare at her and just like have that like open-eyed meditation of the guru and then sometimes she would it would just be like the gesture would be so it would just be like she would just like do that with her head or something. And that would be the gesture to, to come and give the mic. <laughs> anyway, so Harish was the person who showed me how to do the mic because he <laughs> would be back in the sound. He would be one of the people back in the sound room yeah. that was like, you know, doing the sound. So um, he was the one who taught me how to do it and had me come to the hall with the empty chair and practice doing it and, mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. So, yeah, so we that's kind of where we started our relationship. And then um his mom, Surabi, uh was my boss in, in different stages over those 10 years, uh, because she was always like an administrator within that area where I offered my seva. Mm. <laughs> it's funny to talk about all this. Yeah, it's interesting. But, that, but Harish and I Harish and I are still are still good friends. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's how I discovered you was in his Facebook group, Tantra Kyrga Now. Mm. Um, it's interesting when I listen, I notice part of me is like, oh, it sounds a little showbiz or it sounds like she's really controlling. Like I can feel my kind of, I don't know if judgment is the right word, you know, but like kind of perceiving yeah. the scene and the part of me that wants to almost push back against it and be like, I don't know if I'd handle all that. I don't know what that would be like for me. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. yeah. When you when you I don't it, think I don't think you'd handle it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think it would be your I don't think it would be your cup of tea at all. <laughs> yeah. What what was it like for you? Did you have misgivings about you know ever concerns that you were in a cult or misgivings about how it ran or? No. I mean, well, I shouldn't just say flat no. I early on, I feel very fortunate and and very grateful. Somehow, early on, I just got it that, and you'll hear me teach about this oftentimes, mm. where I talk about the baby in the bathwater. Mm. That in any spiritual scene, there's baby, and there's the, you know you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That expression. Um, there's always the bathwater and there's always the baby. So there's always like the valuable thing. And then there's whatever the context is around it that may or may not be valuable. That may in fact be quite toxic and, and completely distracting to the valuable part. You know, mm-hmm. any scene has that though. It, every scene has a baby and bathwater ratio. Mm-hmm. And I just decided early on that, this organization it's a big organization and as such it's going to have a lot of bullshit involved in it Mm -hmm. but i believe in the guru and i believe in the lineage and i i'm not here i'm only here for one thing and i'm here to be a disciple and i'm here to receive the teachings and to um receive the transmission that's going to lead to my freedom Mm-hmm. And that's going to be there whether I'm in this sort of global organizational kind of posh. The ashram was kind of posh, you know. It was mm. like very like a lot of people would be turned off by that. I personally really wanted to have more of like a tribal kind of experience, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that was very confronting for me. But right from the beginning, I was there to be confronted because I, I knew that having my ego and my preferences and, and those things challenged was part of the game. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm so fortunate because I always had mentors. I always mm-hmm. had these like monks that had been around before her, before Guru Mai, that were there with like her guru mm-hmm. and that had seen so much bathwater and so much bullshit over the years. And the ones that were still there when I came had been through many, many layers of test and many, many layers of, of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, so they were like baked, Mm. but they weren't brain, but they weren't brainwashed. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's, it's like they, they had, they had persevered. And they were the ones who really were able to like give me that mentoring of how to do that mm. myself. Mm-hmm. So when you say <laughs> that you really believed in the guru and you believed in the lineage, do you mean the guru as a person or do you mean like the guru tattva, the guru principle? Can you? <clears throat> in the beginning, I didn't understand the guru tattva. Not really. So in the beginning, it was the, the person. Mm-hmm. Um, but then gradually, and this is how the guru works, gradually, um, can I geek out on Sanskrit here a little Jeff, bit? Go for it. Please do okay, geek okay. out. So, yeah, let's go geek. So, <laughs> all right, so, so there's this idea of saguna and nirguna. Mm-hmm. So uh, in Hinduism, 
there's like people, Hindus that are uh, saguna and Hindus that are nirguna in their orientation. Mm -hmm. Saguna means with form, nirguna means without form. Mm -hmm. So a saguna Hindu relates to Ganesha or Krishna or some goddess or some form that's saguna. So then that's what they relate to. Uh, a Hindu or an Indian mystic that is more nirguna oriented, they relate to the formless absolute. They, mm. you know, they relate to like Parashiva that permeates everything or Parashakti that permeates, you know, all things. Um, so in, in, in our path, we understand that both are totally relevant. Mm-hmm. But that really the saguna, the form, is just a form of the formless. Mm-hmm. And so we connect to the form for the sake of getting to the formless. And that's what really happened in my relationship with the guru, where in the beginning, it was like just her and maybe mm-hmm. like the, the gurus of our lineage that came before her. Mm-hmm. And then gradually, I was able to have this kind of abiding connection with her spirit or something Mm -hmm. and then gradually it was just awakened in me that that spirit that guru tattva as you said that term the principle of the guru was something that i could have a nirguna relationship with Mm -hmm. that could flow through her it could Mm -hmm. flow through the siddhas and her lineage but could also flow through you know, other great beings. It could flow through nature. If I'm in the space of discipleship, it could, it could flow through many different things. And at that point, that's the point where then I started scratching my beard. I didn't have a beard in those days. Started scratching my, (laughs) started scratching my face and thinking, this is kind of lame. Why are we doing this this way? And like, and at that point also, I was like a senior guy kind of in the organization. And Mm -hmm. so I had, you know, I was always contrarian. I mean, even when I was like a young buck, I was a little bit contrarian, but by the time I left, I was very much like, guys, come on, this is goofy. We shouldn't do, we're, we're acting like a cult. Come on, let's not do this. Like, mm-hmm. I don't believe in what we're doing. You know, I started speaking up and, and then at a certain point, it was just like, well, why am I still here mm. when actually I could probably serve so much more over here? Mm-hmm. And in this scene is like really serving all these people that are still a part of it. And it's mm-hmm. really feeling more and more like a misfit for me. Mm. So so at that point, when you were sort of going, oh, it's a bit goofy, it feels a little bit like a cult. Um, I don't know timelines on this, but uh, so Muktananda, who was Gudumai's guru, in the last few years, there have been some revelations come out in terms of abuse, sexual abuse of young women, in particular in his later years. So were you aware of that then when you were leaving, or was that known? No, or? I mean, that that was always sort of known and we had a um we had a party line that we that we sort of believed mm-hmm. um and i still to this day i don't know and like no almost yeah. nobody knows because like there aren't uh, almost any first-hand accounts of anything they're all Mm -hmm. like second or third-hand accounts um i have an understanding of it 
now. It was almost like, no, but that didn't have anything. It, it wasn't like I left like that. You yeah. know what I mean? It was yeah, just yeah. That like, I, at first, I just I just resigned my position on staff. You know, with her blessings, I wouldn't have done it if she told me to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, and started teaching on my own. But that in that scene, in effect, really creates a lot of separation mm. in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm interested in, you know, how we navigate these situations because there's been so much coming up in, of course, the last decade or so where teachers of all different stripes, not necessarily Dharma teachers, like if we look at, you know, Vikram, he's not a Dharma teacher at all. He teaches physical postures. Um, but yeah, how do we navigate when revelations come through of things like sexual abuse where it comes back to baby in the bathwater because one of the party one of the party lines that I've heard is that there's a corruption that happens in the teachings and you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater you can't continue to work with teachings and practices if they're being transmitted by someone who was abusive for example it's quite a hard yeah. line yeah yeah I but I think that there's also a spectrum you know mm. like I think that and you know what I saw in 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 our lineage was that um, lots of things happened at the end of Baba Muktananda's life. Mm. All of this that that we're talking about happened like when he was old and actually it seemed like he actually had some kind of brain dementia. Mm. It was post stroke, um, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 and. Um, and there, there were some of those things, and it wasn't. I mean, since we're talking about it, it wasn't like he was just fucking. You know, he wasn't like a young guy. He wasn't like Bikram, who was just like fucking people and raping like having people. relationships on the side, raping people, all that kind of stuff. It wasn't like that. It was some weird other thing that was happening that was sexual in its nature and because of the power dynamic it you know it could be considered abusive and because it's never been acknowledged you know there's like there's like layers of shadow but there are also like layers of there's like spectrum of those sorts of things whereas you have a situation like yogi bhajan Mm. who made up the whole thing made up his whole you know, he's a charlatan. He he made up the whole Kundalini yoga thing and wasn't just doing some like strange boundary things. He was like having his, uh, I don't even want to mention yeah. it, but like really like violent assaults. Perfect. And um, so there's like, there's like a spectrum. And so like, I would say that that makes the teachings that came from Kundalini yoga illegitimate. Mm. but then i say in my lineage that thing was like <laughs> this weird aberration but the thing is it's like what am i going to do am i going to say that like everything that i do is like invalid it would be very hard for me <laughs> see this is like this doesn't like like if i had a manager or a pr person or something they would never let me get into all of this but like <laughs> truth be told there's just like is there's like very very um there's a huge conflict of interest for any of us Mm. to disavow where we come from 
Because then what are we going to do? Like all of these people that make money doing Kundalini yoga, you know, we say, oh, but they never spoke out against Yogi Bhatt. Well, what are they going to do? What else yeah. are they going to do? If they speak out against Yogi Bhajan, they're speaking out against their own thing. And then what are they going to do? Get a job? You know, like they're not going to do that. So it's interesting though, isn't it? When when one's livelihood or income or position in the world becomes dependent upon something like that, you know, it's like, oh, then yeah, what what gets done? Um and it like feeling into this feels important. Like how do we as modern practitioners in this, like I think uh, Dane Thomas interviewed last week, he called it the swamp of the new age. It's like, how yeah. do we navigate as students? And, you know, is the guru disciple role even applicable now to modern household yeah. practitioners? Is that a reasonable thing to do? Or how do we find our way? Yeah. What? Yeah. I mean, I think about this all the time. And as you know, we talk about this. Um, I think that it is applicable. And I think that it's very different than it has been in previous generations. I think that the time of people like joining a scene that has like a charismatic guru is probably done. I think that that was like a patriarchal model. Um, I think that that was a medieval model. It was a pre-industrial model. It was definitely an Indian model. Mm -hmm. um, and outside of all of those contexts it doesn't hold up and it's not holding up I and mean, we just heard about Satchitananda yeah. I don't know if you saw this but like people have been calling out Satchitananda for a while but a big like definitive thing against Satchitananda from integral yoga has just come out recently um one after another you yeah know. so is it systemic that's what I wonder is it is what's being pointed to isn't necessarily the failings of the individual teachers but it's pointing to something that systemically doesn't serve anymore. I think, I don't, I think that it's both actually, but anyway, coming back to like getting out of the problem into the solution. Mm. Um, I think that now seekers, if you're, if you're not a hardcore seeker, forget it. You don't need a guru. Just stay away. Just stay away mm. from the whole thing. Like uh -huh. get a get a picture of Ramana Maharshi if you want to have something like that, or like Ananda Maima, just and leave it at that. Um, if you're a hardcore seeker, you need to have a relationship with the Guru Tattva. Mm. Because if you're a hardcore seeker, you have to be a disciple. Mm. And so because that's the yeah. Thing. But I think that the modern dis or the contemporary disciple has to be omnivorous mm -hmm. in terms of where they're sourcing that guru tattva. Mm -hmm. um, because people will, you know, they'll need, they'll need like some kind of a sadguru, some, and I don't mean the person sadguru. It's just, it's just so crazy making the way that we'll take these terms like kundalini or sadguru or ashtanga there are these universal terms and then they become brand names or someone's <laughs> like stage name or something like that and then you're like you know anyway mm -hmm. but a, a guru that is like teaching 
dharma and teaching the path of awakening mm-hmm. you need you need someone or someone's like that but then i think most modern seekers need to be in therapy also mm. and that's mm. that's part of the guru tattva you know i think that then many modern seekers will want to have some sort of a creative expression and so then they're they're getting guidance there and you know maybe they're doing something kind of uh sophisticated with their physical experience their body mm-hmm. and so then they'll source that from there you know it's it's not like this thing where we just show up at the guru's doorstep at the ashram and just say okay i'm yours and then you eat what the guru feeds you and you study what the guru you know shows you and you you do your job to serve the guru and you know that's mm. that's just like that's shattered i believe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that principle of discipleship and surrender mm. is is that's the that's the baby in the bathwater but man mm-hmm. it's 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 like a um you know i mean you know yeah yeah that's something that's something that that takes a sophisticated kind of kind of work to to work with it mm-hmm. so for those who might not know like when you say discipleship surrender what is that so rather than seeking a guru what i'm hearing you say is that people should seek to be a disciple yeah yeah. So how does someone know when they're beginning to be a disciple? What's it feel like? <laughs> what, how does it show up? What are the hallmarks? It's, it's very different than it's very different than being a customer. See, this is the thing that I like <laughs> yeah. that the Dan the talks about. You know, the the swamp of the new age. It's like um, it's an industry. It's a commercial industry that's made up mostly of entrepreneurs mostly of self-employed entrepreneurs, mostly of very, very undertrained, unqualified, <laughs> self-employed entrepreneurs, myself included. I'll include myself. Compared to my teachers, I'm like an infant. Um, but anyway, that all want our business. Mm. And so they have this vested interest in um us coming back (laughs) (laughs) they want us first of all they want us to come and then once we come they want us to come back and benefit of the doubt they want to serve us they want to help us okay but also if we don't come back and let them serve us they're gonna have to like get a real job (laughs) (laughs) and and so then that puts a that puts a big wobble into this whole thing Mm. because in commerce the customer is always right right Uh so so what do you want (laughs) i you know i want you know banana sunday we have have red cars (laughs) and we have blue cars Uh, what do you want well i want a yellow car Hmm, okay we'll come back next week Hmm, here's a yellow car um and so then I've seen this happen again and again and again over the past couple of decades. Cause I've been doing this for a long time now. Mm-hmm. Um, I separated from the ashram in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been teaching since the 93, um, 92, 93, and separated from the ashram in 2004. 
and have just seen this happen where, you know, the customer is always right. So then everything that's available is catered towards getting people and keeping people. Mm. Whereas traditionally, <laughs> it's the opposite. You know, traditionally, the customer is always wrong. I mean, traditionally, in spiritual teaching, you're there because you don't know. And also, traditionally, the guru will always say, no, no, go away. Like, fuck off. You know, like, there's just like, that's the traditional thing. It's like, the secret comes. It's like, will you please teach me? It's like, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm too busy. You're not ready. No, go find something else. You should just stay away from this. Just go have a nice life. Don't even mess with these teachings because they're going to, they're going to scramble your eggs. You don't want this. Totally. And they'll, please, please, no, just how can I prove myself to you? You know, no, 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 no. They're like, what? <laughs> and so now it's the opposite. Now it's like, you know, let me make a five second TikTok video so that people will click on this and then come to this. And then this thing is popular. So let me do, you know, sound bath. That's popular. And then maybe if, you know, they click this and they come to a sound bath, then, you know, maybe they'll sign up for this other thing. And then they'll sign up for this other thing. And then they'll sign up for this other thing. And within that things really go sideways and the discipleship thing especially because then it's not like you know this is a mythical idea but it's there the mythical idea is it's like you know a saint walks through your village or something and you see them living in this you know state of oneness and all of a sudden, you just realize that you have this desire to yourself be in a state of oneness. Up until that point, you didn't even know. And now you see this, this you know, they're singing a, a song or, you know, like somehow they're expressing the teachings. And then you think, I, will you teach me? Will you, will you take me on? Like, because this one opportunity is there. Mm. And now it's just like we're fighting for people's eyeballs and attention and telling them that they should want what we have you know what i mean <laughs> we're selling we're selling fucking margarine now and we're saying oh you know what your problem is you think that your problem is this but your problem is really spirituality you really need spirituality that's what you really need and my spirituality is this price and it's like fun and we're going to do it in a nice place there's going to be beautiful people look at all the beautiful people that are going to be there um it's totally upside down up. yeah it's tits up <laughs> <laughs> so how do you reconcile this because you're, you're in this business as well right as as a teacher and yeah how, how, do, you, how do you reconcile it how do you do the dance <laughs> yeah well it's funny like i i um i did a retreat with this Indian master called Parvati Bal, who, who's in this Bal tradition from West Bengal. And um, she's just like the most non-commercial, authentic, just like old school Indian teacher. I mean, she's not old. She's younger than me, actually, but um, just beautiful, wonderful, wonderful teacher and, and being and um, a very, it was a very stark reflection for me to see just like how uncompromising she is. 
She doesn't do any bullshit. She doesn't do anything except for like the exactly what her lineage teaches in like the strongest way. And if you like it here, you it's available if you're willing to work for it. And if you aren't willing to work for it, no. And if you don't want it, fine, better. Because we, you know, discernment i give i could give more attention to the few people that are here if i don't have like so many people mm -hmm. and um and so i tried an experiment that was at easter and i think already i would like to think that i really all have always tried to err on the side of authenticity and not be in this whole swampy thing i've tried but since easter i've been doing this experiment where i've been doing this like radical non-compromising I'm only going to teach exactly what I think is like the, the the shit, you know, the hardcore shit. Doesn't matter if I think people want it or not. This is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's just like, I've just seen, you know, to use an industry term, I've just seen my funnel just like turn into a hose. You know, it's like <laughs> so it's narrowing. Like, however, however, yeah, however many thousands of people before, you know, it's like, and, and now I'm back to the thing where I'm thinking, like, should I do a gong bath or something? <laughs> like, <laughs> what do I need to do? I need to like, um, so you know, I I just I think that there has to be. This is this is intense. I don't think people are going to like to hear this. Awesome, but you know, <laughs> I I talked to a traditional a traditional Vedic priest one time, um, and you know, even like that tradition is something that has become pretty commercial in India, in many ways. And and he said he was saying that in traditional times, the priest of a village or a community they would support their family through the offerings that would come to them. You know, mm -hmm. people would have them do a ceremony and in exchange, they would give them some offerings or they might give them some money. But in traditional days, it was usually like offerings of stuff, mm -hmm. food stuff and whatever. And he said, so if there were a lot of things happening and a lot of, a lot of things coming, then they would have abundance. Mm -hmm. And if people weren't coming, then they would fast. Mm. And that is something that is a very strong and bitter medicine mm. that I think is the medicine. It, mm -hmm. It's like the willingness to just be like, okay, what is more important to me? Is, is it more important to me to like be authentic or is it more important for me to have abundance mm. or have freedom you know and it's it's tricky and it's not so simplistic you know like i just think about like this thing of when i was doing more online offerings and you know they started doing like market research and they would say well you know the really popular meditations, Harshada, are the five-minute ones. People and and ones that are longer than five minutes, people tend to trail off at about eight minutes. So let's try to keep the videos between five minutes and eight minutes. 
I understand that because the thing is, is like, if we only have then 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 minute meditations, um, people either aren't going to do the whole thing or they're just not even going to do them. Mm -hmm. They're going to do somebody else's five minute meditations. Mm. So now I'm thinking, oh, well, I don't want them to go there. <laughs> so let me do five minute meditations. <laughs> but so, I mean, like, I guess it's, there's a spectrum. Yeah. Like maybe, okay, I'll do some five minute meditations with the intention of like cultivating them as students so that they'll, they'll want to do the deeper stuff later. The thing is, is I think a lot of these youngins, they will just think, oh, five minute meditations. That's the thing. Mm. You know what I mean? They might not even have that. They might not even have that separation to just think, oh, well, <laughs> they want five minute meditations, not because that's what they need, but because that's what they want. And, and that's what's easy. Mm. But what they need is they, they probably need to like come on a retreat or they need to like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, it, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing because the customer is always wrong in, in actual discipleship. Yeah, you're coming from this point of view of humility, and, mm. the, and the, you know, and you say, "Well, I want to meditate for five minutes," and the guru says, "No, five minutes is not going to do it for you. Mm. Mm. It's just not." And then you have to decide. Okay, well, I'll get another guru who tells me that five minute meditations are great, uh -huh. or I'm going to stay with this and and trust this this relationship. Yeah. These are these are murky waters, Carolia. That yeah. You're leading us into. They are murky waters that I've led us into because <laughs> you know, obviously as a seeker and as a teacher, these are the questions that I've come up against. Same thing that you're discussing. Um, and you know, one of the things that Dane talked about in the interview last week was his sense that the new age swamp has has failed, that people considering how much is on offer and how much seems to be going on that the amount of spiritual progress that is actually occurring. Is... Yeah. <laughs> That's my opening talk when I go to like Kripalu or I'm doing a Kripalu retreat in February. People should come to it. It's like a winter meditation retreat at Kripalu. Um, they're great. I've been doing them for years and years, but I usually will do an opening night talk that's open to the whole community that's there there's lots of teachers doing lots of stuff there um and only so many people coming to my thing but they'll let me do a thing that's called a sampler mm -hmm. and it's supposed mm -hmm. to it's supposed to be a sales <laughs> thing but <laughs> i always just do this i i usually will give this talk where i'll just say look you know like i'll figure out whatever the statistic is last year people spent you know Two billion dollars on yoga and meditation products and you know like an estimated this many million people do yoga regularly and you would think right. <laughs> that if that was the case we would have like changed you know human suffering <laughs> if, if they were really doing something deep that would really be doing something but it's clearly clearly not so what's missing Mm. You know, and, and everyone there is just feeling very kind of uncomfortable in this talk, usually. Mm -hmm. So what is missing? I think that, well, I mean, I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to be so arrogant to try to like pin that down in, in a simple thing. But 
I think that it's not a simple thing. It's three simple things. It's the three points that are in my new book. Um, <laughs> here's the secret. You know, like you want to know why yoga doesn't work for all the millions of people who do it? Oh, well, just like click here, click smash, smash the join button and join in. Um, <laughs> I think that it's like. I think that people have to have what's called adhikara to start off with, which mm -hmm. is which is like this. It's a it's a big Sanskrit word, but you know it means like a readiness, like a spiritual readiness and kind of qualification. And I think that that qualification comes from really having your dick in the dirt, mm -hmm. so to speak. That's a saying I haven't heard before. <laughs> that's an american one oh <laughs> uh, yeah i like it having your dick in the dirt all right go on dick, i can i can dick. guess what it means yeah <laughs> it's very graphic your dick is in the dirt you're just face down you know like and and there's there's a humility that is involved mm. in it, you know where um the you know in the bhagavad-gita for people that are familiar with it, it's like a big treasure trove of like the teachings from, from this tradition. And it starts off with, uh, if you don't know, it's a, it's a dialogue between Krishna, who is the guru and the voice of God and grace and the wisdom, and Arjuna, who is this warrior prince. Um, and he's like the voice of, the, of us, of like the unenlightened human consciousness. And um, the whole thing is a dialogue between them. And it starts off with Arjuna in a mess because he's supposed to fight this big battle and he just chokes and he can't do it. And he, he and it's really interesting. People, I know I'll ever hear people talk about this aspect of the Gita, but he, he asks for help and Krishna tries to help him. And in the, you know, first chapter and beginning of the second chapter arjuna yabats him you know the yabat <laughs> yeah but it's like well you know yeah it's like well five minute meditation is not going to help you you know you should probably meditate for 30 minutes yeah but you know what i find is that you know if i do it for 30 minutes and i fall asleep and you know then i just won't do it at all so better if i just do it for five minutes and, and the guru says well that's just not going to help you and say yeah but if i so Arjuna is yabbutting Krishna at first. And then finally, there's this moment where this verse says that uh, dejected, Arjuna drops his weapons and slumps in the chariot. They're in a chariot in the middle of a battlefield. He says he slumps in the chariot and becomes silent. And that's the point where Krishna starts to actually give the teachings. Mm. with a smirk on his face and the, mm -hmm. the sanskrit could be interpreted that like krishna like with a, a smile but it's like the connotation is like a smirk it's like mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. now now you're ready your dick mm -hmm. is in the dirt like mm. your, your dick has been in the dirt long enough that now you're going to shut up and listen mm -hmm. and and I'm super clear. I'm not talking about a human relationship where you're supposed to shut up and listen to a person 
or a mm. person tells you to shut up. That's a that's a red flag. Mm-hmm. I'm talking on on an archetypal level. I'm talking on on the tatvik level here, mm. where you're you shut up and you listen for the guidance in whatever form it's it's going to come, mm-hmm. and you follow it. You know, mm. and you're 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 willing to come out of your comfort zone, and you're you know like that. That's a whole other thing, and for that, you need you can't do it alone. I believe. Yeah, I believe that you re- you really need support, and that's that's one of the things that I'm that I offer. Mm. Um, and I feel like I mean I've offered it for years and years, and I feel like maybe right now I'm actually qualified to offer it. I don't know if I was qualified to offer it when I was 35, mm-hmm. but I was doing it when I was 35. Um, but I feel like at this stage, you know, it's like a lot of like yoga, te- a lot of people, they've been teaching yoga. They've been like yoga students or, for years and and have been kind of bouncing around with this stuff on their own. And um, they don't really know what it's like to just have somebody like, talk to them and say, well, why don't you do it this way instead? Mm. Or I see this in you. Why don't, why don't you try to see that in you too and get back to me and let me know how it goes. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I really like to offer for people Mm. to whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. humble way that I can assuming that they also are getting the other support that they need. If they need to be in therapy, they need to be in therapy. If they need to get sober, they need to get sober. If they need to, you know, whatever they need to do, all that kind of stuff. But for that conversation, um, I, can, mm. I can help them. So what I'm hearing you say in terms of like issues with <laughs> issues with the new age swamp per se, um, is that as a seeker, what I should be attuning to or seeing if I can notice is the part of me that goes, yeah, but when life is offering me feedback or or guidance and I should attune to that with curiosity, those moments when I'm like, yeah, but and go, oh, wait a second. What would it feel like mm. in this moment to go, yeah, and. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, to, and to sort of like want freedom more than we want comfort yeah and 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 be willing to be wrong as opposed to the customer is always right and be mm. catered to to actually you know be confronted mm-hmm. in a non-patriarchal way i mean i'm mm. a very i'm you know a very kind of like male-bodied person but I have learned over the years that it's very important to approach this stuff from a feminine, you could say, um, mm. in a feminine manner, rather than, oh, well, you know, like you're going to get confronted and no pain, no gain. And, you know, like, I think that that's like, that's just going to cause more trouble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm aware of time. I feel like we could talk. For yeah. hours about all these things i do want to ask you about the pilgrimages that you do to india though mm-hmm. um, you, you take a small group of people to india once or twice a year and this is like what 10 days 12 days it's not really like a tourist trip 
or even like a traditional retreat, what happens when you go? Like what's the orientation and how do you know yeah. where to go? Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been going to India since my guru sent me there in, in 1997. Um, and I just, I, it's like a second home to me. And I, especially the places where I bring people are generally places that I know very well. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a, something that I've created, co-created, you know, with the other people who helped me and the people that have gone with me for many, many years now. And just seeing, first of all, I just think that it's important that people study, people that study Indian Dharma, you know, Tantra, Vedanta, Bhakti Yoga, Yoga, um, that have benefited from these things and that, you know, like you could say have gotten things from this culture go there and and to give back to the to give back to the culture to a certain extent but also to um be able to receive it within that context because it's just so different mm. there's just certain things that like i could i could teach forever and people wouldn't get it and i take them to india and they get it on day two just from mm. osmosis mm-hmm and you and again you don't get that as a tourist because everything yeah. is being catered to you and the traditional retreat thing as you say or a typical retreat thing that too these days it's just going to be it's just going to be a product of somebody like come and do our teacher training and it's in india but it, it's again it's like a catered thing whereas what we do is we'll choose a group and, you know, it's not for everybody, but if people like have that Adhikara um, and we, I take them to these different places and we're kind of moving around as a small group, teaching the whole time in, in satsang the whole time, doing a lot of practice. And um, it's really an initiation and, mm. you know, it's not fancy, but it's also, it's not like we're sleeping by the roadside but it, it's it's definitely an initiation. Mm. And so how do you move away from it being so like a, a consumer-orientated tour guide where you're jumping off the bus and taking the photos of the temple and, you know, doing the con- consuming of the experience yeah. and I'm then back so, on the bus? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so controlling. I, um, <laughs> I'm so, I mean, it's like where all of my Capricorn rising is just like to, it's like, I have Capricorn rising just to the maximum. People have to do like a two and a half hour cultural orientation before we even go. Um, I make people wear like Indian clothes when we're there. I don't let people really use cameras or like even like wear sunglasses Mm-hmm. I mean, don't let you know we're in silence so much of the time like if we're in a in a place and we're walking as a group i insist that everyone is in silence as we're moving um and i'm just constantly reminding people just constantly mm-hmm. constantly but also we just don't go to those places we go to we don't go to places where tourists go really i mean sometimes there's indian tourists there but it's mostly indian pilgrims mm. and we just, I just manhandle people to be able to like be in that mode of pilgrimage and hum- it's really humility. 
yeah. you know, as opposed to consuming and, you know, like to not feel like, oh, you know, like I've rented India for this 12 days and I'm just going to like get as much out of it as I can. It, it, it's more like, let me be here like as one of millions and millions and millions of seekers that have like walked this path and let me just have the privilege of just like being here in this moment and mm. doing this practice here in this moment and like taking this in. Mm. And, and I always have at least one photographer in the group that's taking pictures of everything that can give them to people. I don't let people shop either. If people want to <laughs> shop, they have to stay an extra day and then we do shopping day. And then we're in <laughs> Mumbai and we just like, they, oh, you know, I want to get a statue of Ganesh. Okay, so we can do that. I want to get curtains from my apartment. We can do that. But I don't let them shop. They don't deal with any money or anything the whole time. Mm. <laughs> awesome. Uh, thank you so much just for your time and your presence um, and giving us some insight into the path that you've walked on this journey. Is this what you wanted? Do you feel like you got what you what you were after i i try and come in with no expectations and just let the conversations roll like i make a bunch of notes and questions that i often will just never end up asking because i'm i'm attuning to what's coming up and responding to that yeah yeah do you feel satisfied yeah there were some moments when we were talking that it really felt like just almost like hitting on the energetic transmission of, of things it's not even so much about the words but it's that felt sense um and I feel like coming off the back of the interview I just did with Dane Thomas, it's so beautiful to have another perspective on similar material, you know? Mm. So, mm. yeah. Good. Yeah. All righty then. So that was Harshita, uh, another conversation with Karalia. Just noticing that I, I just feel so content and like, like I've got this inner smile, this joy, just just feel really at peace from just hanging out with Hashida for the last, you know, almost 90 minutes um, and really deeply listening to, I call it deep listening, huh, um, to what he had to say, not listening to the words, but just, just letting his beingness really impact. Um, and I, I just love hearing the insights and the perspective from people that have been on the path for decades and particularly in different spiritual scenes. I felt it was really interesting listening to him share about the scene of the ashram and being able to sort of discern and see through the aspects of the organization and, and how it started to feel like maybe it was a little cult-like, but that that organizational aspects or the cult-like aspects are indeed separate from the teachings and the practices. Um, because it's such an interesting discussion going on right now in terms of if everything is corrupted, and I'm not saying it is, but if all teachers, lineages, organizations ultimately end up being corrupted in some way, shape or form, how do you know what's pure? How do you know what to align to? How do you know which lineage to go and study with? Like there's such an under lineage, you know, so much stuff's come down through there and there's this whole sexual child abuse scandal that's that's happened in the last while. And that's happened with so many of the different lineages. Um, so I loved what Hashara was saying around forget, you know, unless you're a hardcore seeker, forget about the guru, forget about the guru and instead focus on discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple as compared to what does it mean to be a customer? 
Um, so in terms of a takeaway, that's one thing, like if you're a seeker, and I'm guessing that if you're watching this, you are a seeker, you're a spiritual practitioner of some kind, that maybe a useful contemplation would be, what does it mean to be a disciple on this path compared to a consumer or customer or a client? What does discipleship feel like in my body when I'm orientating to the path, to the teachings as a disciple? What is that like for me? All righty. Thanks so much for watching or listening to another conversation with Carolia. And uh, blessings on your day, whatever might unfold from this point onward. Are you ready to realize the self, to resolve your shit, to rejoice in daily life? Join Carolia's community via her online platform, The Toolbox. Get ready for a paradigm shift and how you experience yourself and your reality. The Toolbox, where you'll find everything you need for the spiritual path, view teachings, practices, community, and a teacher who cares. Find The Toolbox at toolbox.carolea.com T-O-O-L-B-O-X dot K-A-R-A-L-E ah.com Thanks for listening to Conversations with Carolia and trust that you enjoyed that nuanced deep dive into spirituality, sexuality, power and awakening. If you love my take on the spiritual path and you're looking for more insights like this, then make sure you subscribe and like. You can also check out my website carolia.com that's k a r a leah.com and subscribe to my weekly newsletter.